welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Boy, oh boy, there has been a whole lot of deceit going on in the House of Representatives on the part of the Republicans and coming out of the White House after the explosive bombshell, unequivocally devastating testimony during these impeachment hearings over the last 10 days. Um, I am, I'm just blown away by how obvious it is that the president of the United States engaged in abusive powers and a clear bribery, extortion, shakedown, full-on conspiracy with the government of Ukraine in order for him to obtain politically damaging information against his chief political rival, Joe Biden. It's, uh, it's just remarkable. Um, and thankfully I have a great guest, uh, coming up on this week's episode to break that down, particularly legally. He will tell me whether my, my characterization of the impeachment hearings are accurate. <laughs> am I legally on my on legal ground when I say that the president engaged in a bribery extortion plot? Professor Ryan Goodman will talk about that. We have a great conversation coming up. He's um, he's a, a law professor at NYU. He used to be the general counsel over in the Department of Defense. He also has a PhD in sociology from Yale. He was a professor of law at Harvard. So Professor Ryan Goodman, super smart guy. And um, uh, it's a uh, stay tuned for for my conversation with him and his assessment. Uh, you often hear me refer to a website called justsecurity.org because they have a fantastic roster of experts in the national security and legal spaces. And they're nonpartisan. And Ryan, Professor Ryan Goodman, who's the co-founder of JustSecurity.org as well, and he's the, the co-editor now, in, in addition to his prof- professor, prof- professorial duties at NYU. So that's who's coming up. That's the guest coming up in a little bit. But I am going to, because people have been dying to hear my assessment of what's happened with these impeachment hearings. Also, we had a Democratic debate this week. I mean, I'm politically exhausted <laughs> This was a politically exhausting week, but this is what I live for, and this is the season we're in. So, of course, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my give my thoughts and and break it down a little bit. Um, I'm gonna start off with the debate. I want to get that out of the way because even my I usually write a post debate hot take for CNN opinion, and this week I said that it felt like the debate felt like an afterthought because it came in the middle of the week on Wednesday um, after two full hearings, uh, impeachment hearings of, of witnesses. It was a lot. And it was on Wednesday when uh, Ambassador Sondland testified with his bombshell testimony, basically throwing everybody from the president to Rick Perry under the bus and put the bus in reverse and ran over them again. He admitted there was a quid pro quo. He implicated everybody. (laughs) 
And um, it was just, it was a lot. And he was a lot, his disposition and everything. It was, it was a lot. So then after he was over, that was like all day. And then at four o'clock or something, there were two more witnesses that were called. I was like, what is happening? I forgot about these people. And then there's a debate after this. Oh my God. Wednesday was nuts. It was the never ending political day. Um, but consequential nonetheless, nonetheless. And, um, so let me just talk a little bit about the debate before I get into my impeachment stuff. So, um, I'm over the debates at this point. I I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, I'm annoyed that there's still 10 people on the debate stage. It's a waste of time. I, 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 I cannot believe the Democratic National Committee has screwed this up so royally. They were supposed to have rules in place so that you wouldn't have a million people on the stage still at this at this stage, at this point. Uh, I don't understand how they did not learn from the mistakes of the Republicans during the 2016 election cycle, where we had way too many debates and way too many freaking people on stage, the JV debate and then the varsity debate. It was asinine. It was ridiculous. So because the American people lose interest really fast. And at this point, if you are in like low digits polling, you don't belong on the stage. You're not a major player, period. I'm sorry. I know people like Andrew Yang. He's never becoming president. No, he's not. He doesn't have the experience. He's a one trick pony with this universal income thing. And that's great that he's into innovation and he's like super, uh, Yang gang and into, into, um, tech and all that. Wonderful. Not ready to be president of the United States. Okay. Enough with this guy. It's a gimmick. I'm sorry. Yang's got to go. Tom Steyer, and his awful, terrible tie. I don't want to see that anymore. He is another one trick pony. It's all about climate change. Okay. However you feel about that. That's great. You're not ready to be president of the United States either. You're buying your access. Take that money and put it toward boosting another candidate that could beat Donald Trump. You're never becoming president. Get the hell off the stage and stop wasting everybody's time. You're buying your supporters. And I, listen, I don't, I don't begrudge him for being a billionaire. Good for him. But no, get out of here. You don't deserve, you don't deserve to be on the stage either. You, no one's ever voting for you for president. You're out of here. Tulsi Gabbard. Listen, this chick <laughs> is a problem. Um, she, some people agree with her because I guess they like the fact that she was a veteran and she talks about pulling out of wars and okay. And she's also pretty. Let's be honest. Okay. She's pretty to look at. She's from Hawaii. And unfortunately, Russians are boosting her candidacy. Okay. That's the truth. Hillary Clinton, when she made the comment about someone being a Russian agent, maybe that was a little harsh, but she wasn't completely off base. There are plenty of stories out there, open source that show that the Russian bot army that's on the on social media platforms are boosting Tulsi Gabbard. They're doing that for a reason. She's met with Assad, who's the butcher in Syria. He is a brutal dictator who has used chemical weapons on his own people. She thinks that, oh, we should sit down and talk to them. No. Okay. She uses Russian propaganda terminology when talking about foreign policy, like 
endless regime change wars. Okay, that might, that might sound like an innocuous soundbite to people in the US, but it's actually a Russian propaganda term. So no, she needs to go. No one's ever voting for her for president either. And um, she also cozies up to Fox News and, and uh, I believe David Duke endorsed her. No, sorry, you don't get to be on the stage anymore. Go away. So I'm over it. If you haven't noticed, I'm over these people. We need the serious top five candidates, max, max at this point. Uh, Cory Booker had a great debate. Uh, If that Cory Booker had shown up from the very beginning, I think maybe he would be polling better. But uh, it may be too little too late for him. There's only six candidates who have qualified for the next debate, thank God, in December, which is in L.A. at UCLA. And um, it doesn't look like Cory Booker is going to be one of them. So sorry, but this is the point where we have to pare down the field. Kamala Harris had a decent debate. She, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of hers. I just I never have been. I know a lot of my progressive friends like her and that's fine. But she's polling at eight percent in her own home state of California. That, you know, the people who know you best, that should tell you. Right. So I, um, I, you know, I, I, Kamala doesn't, she does, she, she, she doesn't have a chance either. So she really, it's time for her to go. She's, she doesn't have the money anymore. She's not really raising the money. Her camp, she's had to cut campaign staff in places. So I don't know how much longer she's going to last. Um, going down the line, Klobuchar, I, yeah, listen, uh, she's, I don't know. She's weird to me. Um, and kind of, I don't know. I, I, I mean, her positions, I agree with a lot because obviously I'm a Republican and I, I trend toward the moderate candidates here in, in the democratic field, but she's not going to win either. So she doesn't present well. I don't know what that shaking thing is. It's very weird. Uh, and unfortunately we live in a very visual society, how you present to people on television, how you communicate matters to a lot of folks because their decisions are based unfortunately more on emotion and how they make you feel versus facts. And clearly just look at Trump and just even look at the support for Tulsi Gabbard. Like I said before, if she weren't pretty, no one would give two shits what she had to say. Let's just be honest. They wouldn't give her a chance given her positions. Same thing with Sarah Palin. I said the same thing back then. If Sarah Palin wasn't good looking, the conservatives wouldn't have listened to anything she had to say because she was an idiot. So uh, it's the same thing and it's harsh, but true. So Klobuchar, unfortunately, sorry, sweetie, you, you ain't got a chance. So she needs to go too. That leaves us with the top tier candidates at this point. Biden, Warren, Buttigieg, Sanders. And, um, you know, there's been a big debate this week about where, you know, about Pete Buttigieg. Does he have a shot? Is he just because he's some small town mayor in Indiana, couldn't win a a statewide race there? What makes people think that he's going to win the Democratic nomination and can take on Trump? Valid arguments. I personally like Pete Buttigieg because I find him to be thoughtful and a breath of fresh air. I don't care that he's gay at this point, uh, that none of that, none of those kinds of things matter to me anymore. It's really irrelevant at this point, given the state of the, of the country. I, nothing can be worse than what we have right now with Donald Trump. And, um, I, but, but there are a lot of people out there in this country, including a lot of, 
African-Americans, especially older ones, who will not be able to get past that, which is partially why Buttigieg is polling so low with African-Americans in key states like South Carolina. But he has seen a surge of support in New Hampshire and and, uh, Iowa, early voting states, which are crucial because of the momentum question and people start noticing because they're the first states. They're also predominantly white states. And it's, uh, it's interesting to look at this kind of growing divide in the Democratic Party over this. And um, it's just something to watch. It is something to watch. I mean, Buttigieg has emerged unscathed from every single one of these debates. He is clearly a talented guy, very, very smart. And we saw uh, in this debate and the last one that he is a counterpuncher as well. He has the ability to shoot back with really witty, you know, quick-witted um, responses. He shut down Tulsi Gabbard and her nonsense. He was able to go toe-to-toe with Elizabeth Warren on health care. So he's really taken over that moderate lane a bit because he's more articulate in his ability to express his positions and um, on, on policy issues and, you know, foreign policy. And he's been able to do that in a way that Joe Biden has not in these debates. So I think that's why people are gravitating toward toward Buttigieg, because they appreciate the fact that, you know, he's able to present things well. How far that gets him remains to be seen. But he is it is interesting to watch him uh, emerging. Biden. So everyone here knows that I'm very supportive of Joe Biden. I still think that he can win and beat Donald Trump. Uh, I also think that he's the only candidate on that stage in this field who is ready on day one. Experience matters. With experience comes wisdom. I may disagree with him on policy stuff, but at this point, I don't care because we just need someone who's capable and competent, decent, civil, and keeps his word and who can, who we can at least know isn't waking up every day tweeting, going on Fox News, saying outrageous, crazy things with, you know, boosting Russian propaganda talking points as if they're fact the way Donald Trump does. We know that that Joe Biden isn't going to violate his oath of office. Um, He's not going to screw porn stars and pay them off. I mean, you know, he's not going (laughs) to. The list is long. Okay, everything that Donald Trump is not. And Joe Biden was vice president for eight years. That says something. It tells you that he is ready. He understands the job. And we need that. We need someone. We need stability, normalcy. It may not be pretty or flashy, but it's stable and reliable and good and decent. And that's what Joe Biden is. Yes, he's a gaffe machine. Yes, he said some cringeworthy things during the debate. The debate format is not his forte. It just ain't. And, but if you saw him during the CNN town hall last week, which feels like a month ago, he was phenomenal. That's where he thrives. He thrives where in more long form formats where he's able to interact directly with people. That's his thing. Good old fashioned retail politics. Um, you know, yes, he said some cringeworthy things, the comments about, you know, we have to keep punching at it, punching at it when talking about 
women's rights and sexual assault. You know, I, we understand what he meant, but it was a terrible choice of words. All right, whatever. Do we think that Joe Biden is a woman beater? No. So who cares? You know, at least we have to look at these things from the greater scheme of things. His his back and forth with Cory Booker, again, cringeworthy when he was trying to explain that he has a lot of support from prominent black leaders in this country. Yes, he misspoke and said the, the only black female senator supports him when Kamala Harris is the second elected black female senator and she was there. Okay, whatever. I mean, you know, give the guy a break. He's 77. But he, he's still, in my opinion, the most qualified and best person to not only run the country after this mess, but he also appeals to middle America. And that's, that's where this election is going to be won. I cannot emphasize this enough. National polls don't matter. We don't have a national election. The electoral college, individual states matter. Just remember Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Donald Trump won by 77,000 votes combined in those three states. That's where it's going to be fought. So we have to remember who is going to be best suited to do that. It's not going to be Michael Bloomberg. Okay, no. And it's sure as hell is not going to be Deval Patrick. Probably some of you are saying who? Deval who? Exactly. No one knows Deval Patrick. He's the former governor of Massachusetts, no one knows him outside of New England and Democratic donor circles. He, uh, uh, what he's thinking, I have no idea. Who the hell is advising him? I have no idea. But the fact that he would even think at this point that he's going to jump in this race with no brain, no name recognition, zero fundraising ability, and, you know, what, what does he think he's going to do? And and he hasn't been in one debate. It's not happening. He the, and, and, and this week should have been a wake up call for him. He had a, an event scheduled the same night as the debate in Atlanta at Morehouse College, which is a black a black college in HBCU. They had to cancel that event because two people showed up for it. Get did you get the hint of all Patrick? No one wants you running for president at this point. Have a seat. So those are my thoughts about the Democratic debate. Um, the field I think is relatively unchanged. Biden's got to do a better job. I just, you know, again, like I said, this, this is not his format, his format. It's not good for him. Um, but his ads are great. He's great when he's one-on-one great in long form environments. I just, he just has to do no harm in these debates, honestly. So, um, that's that moving on now to the impeachment hearing. And like I said, I have Professor Ryan Goodman coming up, who is a NYU law professor, and he's following this stuff very closely. And we're going to talk more a little bit about the legal side of stuff and what he saw as as important aspects of the hearings. But I'm going to go through a couple of things. Um, the most compelling testimony to me came from Marie Ivanovich. Fiona Hill, the two rock star women who had more balls during these testimony, during these hearings and their testimony than the entire Republican Party, Donald Trump, his whole cabinet and everybody put together. These women kicked ass and I was so proud of them. I, you know, I'd never seen them before, heard them speak before, only obviously read about them and 
and their testimony, but watching them take on the bullies in the Republican Party on that committee, the Jim Jordans and the Devin Nunes, who's dumb as a rock, this Devin Nunes. I can't believe this guy's a member of Congress. And I'm glad I voted for, for, for the Democratic Congresswoman in my area just to help get Republicans out of Congress, out of power, so that Devin Nunes would no longer be the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. It was worth it just for that. But these two women, both immigrants with amazing stories that are American citizens now who have given, um, well, Marie Yovanovitch, 33 years of her life to foreign service and served honorably. Fiona Hill, she came from family of coal miners in Northern England and tough as nails, smart as whips, these women, and they weren't taking any shit and good for them. They've been attacked by the president of the United States, his rabid supporters in horrible ways, threatened and everything else. I mean, Trump tweeted while Yovanovitch was testifying, for God's sakes, witness intimidating, unbelievable. But they stood tall, they told the truth, and they made a very, very compelling case for for the president's abusive power and his inappropriate behavior. And I say, good for them. I want to be a part of, I think I want to be in a girl group with them. (laughs) They look like cool chicks. So thank you very, I just want to say thank you to Dr. Fiona Hill, who closed out the hearings, by the way, with a bang. If anyone hadn't seen, hasn't seen her testimony, they need to. The the clips don't do it justice. I know people have lives and they're not going to sit around watching testimony. They didn't see it already, but the clips are worth it. She, Dr. Fiona Hill, just verbally eviscerated the Republicans and their ilk. So much so that by the end of her testimony, they, they stopped questioning her because she was not giving them, she was, they were not eliciting the answers they wanted from her, particularly their terrible counsel. That guy, the Republican lawyer, Steve Castor, terrible. People say he's a nice guy, maybe, but I have no patience for the enablers, so he gets no pass from me. Um, but they they just, they stopped questioning her. The Republican members were just using their time to, to give soliloquies at that point, because every time she opened her mouth, she just destroyed their narratives. And it was beautiful to watch. <laughs> um, David Holmes, who was the also one of the last witnesses. He testified side by side with her. He's the guy who overheard the conversation that Bill Taylor um, let everyone know. He revealed there had been a phone conversation at a a restaurant on the outside patio in Kiev where Sondland was talking to Trump and Trump brought up the investigations. And David Holmes was the, the Ukraine embassy employee who overheard it. He was no wallflower either. He, his exchange with Jim Jordan is something also that people need to see. He wasn't letting Jim Jordan and his obnoxiousness, he wasn't letting him get away with shit, nor should he have. It was beautiful to watch. So those were some people who I thought were excellent witnesses, credible. Um, Alexander Vindman, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Let me say something about this. So... During the Marie Ivanovich uh, testimony, her just her love of country, her dedication, 
and what she went through. It was, it, it broke her strength. It, it literally, I, I was like tearing up and I tweeted that out. I had another tear up mo- moment during these hearings and that was during Lieutenant Colonel Vinman's testimony. And you could tell that he was nervous. You know, he was reading from his notes and he, you could see the, the paper shaking. You know, he was clearly nervous. He's not used to being in the front and, you know, in front of all these things. He's an American hero. He's a soldier. He has a Purple Heart, decorated Iraqi war veteran. And he's a policy expert on Ukraine, Russia, and that part of the world because his family came here escaping the oppression of the Soviet Union when he was a toddler, him and his brothers. And they grew up with their father working his ass off to provide for his family and ended up with three sons who served in the United States military, all honorably. And his twin brother, also in the military, and he's a JAG officer, so he's an attorney. And he works in the White House as well. These guys are patriots. Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vinman is a patriot. But you wouldn't know that if you were listening to Republicans or watching Fox News or looking at the sewers of Twitter and other places on social media. They have actually, because Alexander Vindman stood up and said he was one of the witnesses who firsthand heard the phone call that, that's been in dispute, the phone call on July 25th that prompted the whistleblower complaint, which has in fact been corroborated despite what Trump and the GOP has said. The whistleblower's complaint has been corroborated by multiple people. It was also deemed credible by the inspector general that Trump appointed. So don't get distracted by the Republicans on the committee and Trump screaming about the whistleblower, the whistleblower. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But Alexander Vindman was one of the people who was actually on that phone call. He was alarmed by what he heard. He was also alarmed by a meeting that he was in on July 10th prior to this phone call where Ambassador Sondland was there with the Ukrainians and Volker and Bolton, where he brought up this, where Sondland brought up, well, you'll get your White House meeting if you open investigations into Burisma and the Bidens. Vindman testified that he went, he went to the National Security Council lawyer to report this because it was improper. Then fast forward two weeks to the phone call on the 25th between Trump and Zelensky, where Trump brings it up. He brings up Burisma and Biden and this debunked conspiracy theory about Ukraine and CrowdStrike and the server and the, and the DNC in 2016 and talk to Rudy and all of this craziness that had been unfolding in the wings. The, the president brings up on this official phone call. Vindman was alarmed and reported it as he should have. And during his testimony, he said that it was his duty to do this. And he's damn right. It was his duty to do it. And for doing his duty, he has been attacked, called a traitor, questions about dual loyalty to the Ukraine over the United States. This is insane and shameful. Reports came out that his family had to be put in, uh, into protection. The army had to, had to protect his family because of the threats against his life for testifying. What? You know, during his testimony, the part that made me tear up was when he talked about his dad 
who remember I said his family came from the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union in the 70s, where he talked about that he wouldn't be able to testify against the government or the head of government, like the president in a place like the Soviet Union, people are killed for that there. But he reassured his father as he sat there in that committee room on Capitol Hill that it's going to be all right. And Congressman Sean Mahoney said to him, what makes you, what, why were you so sure that you'd be all right? What, what gave you confidence knowing that you're going up against the president of the United States, essentially, what gave you confidence to tell your dad that not to worry? And Lieutenant Colonel Vinman said, because here in America, right still matters. Man, I was like, wow. And the committee, the, the, the people who are in the committee room, applause, standing ovation for him. Amazing. That's right. In America, right matters. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Because what's going on with this White House and this president is despicable. It's an abuse of power and he cannot be not be held accountable. He must be held accountable. The Constitution demands it. Our, the oath of office that these officials take demands it. And all these other things are just distractions. They really are. The, what the Republicans are doing, I just can't believe that history is going to be kind to these, these jack-offs. It's, it's just not. The way that they're manipulating the truth, the way that they are just flat-out lying, the way they are completely misrepresenting what's going on, and the, the fact that they are essentially trying to give a pass to the president of the United States for clear abuse of power, clear bribery, clear corrupt intent. It's clear. I I just don't see how, how history is kind to them. Um, there was something else that I wanted to, to bring up and this, and this, (laughs) you know, I, I come from a political communications background, so I'm always looking at how things are messaged, Right. And even though I think Adam Schiff did a great job shutting down the Republicans, whining about process and trying to disrupt the disrupt the hearings with their BS, he really shut that down in the beginning. They tried it a little bit in between, but he wasn't having it, and it was glorious to watch. And frankly, his closing his closing arguments at the end of every hearing were very very powerful summaries of what was happening, and I'm glad that he did them. However, the Republicans were clearly just putting on a performance for sound bites for Fox News every night and for the president to tweet out. They really weren't adjusting their, quote, defense in any way. We pretty much knew what they were going to say every time they questioned witnesses. It didn't matter because the facts of the situation were so overwhelming and devastating that they just there was no way. Not one person disputed the facts of Trump's behavior. They tried to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what stuck with all kinds of crazy shit. And Dunez, Nunez bringing up. Um, conspiracy theories and and a couple others. Jim Jordan screaming at people constantly, thinking if he yells like a maniac that somehow that makes him sound more legit. I don't know. But it was pretty remarkable to watch them. And I kept saying to myself, every Democrat, every time they had a chance to question a witness, they should have taken a minute or two to say, not even a minute, you could have done it in 
maybe a minute, gone down the list of the top 10 responses to that, that nullified Republican talking points. It was very easy to do. They could have done it from day one because that repetition needed to happen because that's what the Republicans did. They constantly repeated the same things over and over again. And, you know, repetition creates reality for folks. So Democrats should have uh, returned the favor in kind. So I came up with kind of like old David Letterman style for people who used to watch David Letterman. He'd always have a top 10 every night, a list of the top 10, whatever. So I have a list of the top 10 comebacks to the GOP bullshit that they try to put out there about Ukraine and the impeachment hearings. And this is something I think everyone can use. So if you ever have, you have conversations over Thanksgiving dinner with your crazy Trump pro Trump relatives over Thanksgiving dinner, and this topic happens to come up, you'll be armed with facts. <laughs> facts, 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 which is what I deal with. I deal with reality. I don't deal with conspiracy theories. And I tell it like it is, if you haven't noticed. So here is my top 10 comebacks to GOP impeachment bullshit. Number one, Burisma was not under investigation at the time that the Ukrainian prosecutor, Victor Shokin, was fired. I cannot emphasize this enough. How many times did Republicans say that Vice President Biden went to Ukraine and he engaged in a quid pro quo and and threatened Ukraine to fire the prosecutor who was investigating his son's company. There was no active investigation going on at the time. Not true. Okay. So Burisma was not under investigation at the time that this corrupt prosecutor that everyone in the world, other than the people he was on, you know, in bed with, agreed that Victor Shokin was corrupt and had to go. Number two, Joe Biden was not threatening Ukraine to have this this guy fired because he was investigating his son's company. Joe Biden was was acting on behalf of the U.S. government, official U.S. government policy. Also, our policy was in line with NATO and the European Union and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. So... That's what Vice President Trump, uh, Vice President Biden was doing. He was engaging in official U.S. policy, not something that benefited him or the or Obama personally. Huge difference. Obama, he didn't give lethal aid to Ukraine, but tr- President Trump has, which was a point that the Republicans kept bringing up. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Whether Obama gave lethal weapons or lethal aid to Ukraine while he was president has no bearing whatsoever on Trump's behavior now. It's a distraction. That's nice that they want to give uh, Trump credit, Republicans do, saying, oh, well, you know, he he's helped Ukraine. They got the lethal aid, didn't they? Well, here's the thing about that. Number one, like I said, it doesn't matter. It has no bearing on the facts of the case right now and how Trump has behaved by abusing his his oath of office, shaking Ukraine down. If anything, it bolsters the case that Trump knew good and hell damn well that the Ukrainians desperately needed that lethal aid and that he was the guy who was going to give it to them. So they were more likely to do whatever he wanted. So he had more leverage over them. So that doesn't work, that argument. 
that, well, but, but Trump gave them lethal aid. First of all, he had to. The United States Congress approved the aid package for Ukraine in September of 2018. That money and that aid had to be dispensed before the fiscal year was over, before September 30th of 2019. So Trump really could not have held that aid back unless, and one of the witnesses, actually, the woman, Laura Cooper from the Pentagon, she was actually one of the less high profile witnesses, but a really crucial one because she ran the office in the Pentagon that did the certification, which was required by law that Ukraine was in fact engaged in their anti-corruption efforts and that they were be that they were able to get this money that they were behaving properly and that the money could be re- and the aid package could be released so the money and the weapons that's what the pentagon had to do that's what the law the congress what congress passed that's what the law said they did the review the pentagon said yeah there wasn't any problem with releasing this money by the way Laura Cooper the pentagon official also said that there were emails that demonstrated the Ukrainians were aware that the, that the aid was being held up as early as ju- early July. So I'm going to get to that in a second. So anyway, so yes, so the so so the lethal aid, right? The Ukrainians knew that Trump was the one that was going to say yay or nay, right? Well, technically, so it doesn't help them to say that they got it anyway. It actually bolsters the fact that they knew that he had more leverage over them. Got the aid anyway, right? That was a point that the Republicans kept making. So what? There couldn't have been a quid pro quo. Couldn't have been bribery. Couldn't have been any of these things. He got the aid, didn't he? Didn't Ukraine get the aid? Yes, they did. However, the aid was held up for two months, inexplicably. We know the reason, but no official reason. The reason why the aid was released was coincidentally two days after the whistleblower complaint was made known to Congress. So they got caught. The Republicans, uh, Trump got caught. They had to release the money. That's an important, that timing matters. It matters considerably. Got the aid anyway. Yeah, after they got caught, it was released relatively quickly. It was a perfect call which is what Trump still says. Now, I said before and others that the only defense that they really have for Trump's behavior is, well, you can say it was inappropriate, it was wrong, but not impeachable. That's arguable. I and many others believe it's impeachable and that he engaged in bribery, extortion, and a shakedown and a a criminal conspiracy. But we could argue that, right? No, Trump is not giving any ground. He's not ceding any ground. It was a perfect call as far as he was concerned. No, it wasn't a perfect call. And the multiple witnesses who testified attested to that. Not one person, not one, including the two witnesses, Volcker and Sondland, who were Republican witnesses. There are the witnesses the Republicans asked for. They admitted that it was not a perfect call. Sondland, for God's sakes, admitted it was a quid pro quo going on and implicated everyone. And everybody knew everyone was in the loop. So it was not a perfect call, folks. All of the career professionals admitted that that was a problem phone call. They were alarmed. You had the whistleblower, even, you know, uh, others said that was a problem. I need you to do I need you to do me a favor, though. Just read the transcript as Trump. You realize you haven't seen people say read the transcript too much anymore. (laughs) Yeah, read it. What do you think? 
pretty obvious. And Trump admitted it. And so did Mulvaney. They admitted it. The whistleblower. They're screaming about the whistleblower. Listen, the whistleblower is irrelevant at this point. The Republicans initially said were screaming about whining that that it was all hearsay, 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 until the firsthand witnesses started to show up. So then the hearsay argument went out the freaking door. Well, the whistleblower, in, they, they claim he didn't have firsthand knowledge of, of the phone call or anything else. It was, quote, hearsay. He heard it second and third hand from people. So what, which is it? Either hearsay isn't something you can use, which, by the way, you can in a court of law. There's all kinds of exceptions to, I think, 21 exceptions to where hearsay is admissible. And this is not a court of law, by the way. It's impeachment. But still, hearsay is valuable and can be used. But which is it? But they keep going on about the whistleblower. Do not get caught up in the whistleblower distraction. That's all it is. They need a boogeyman and the whistleblower is it. The whistleblower doesn't matter at this point with all the public testimony and all the firsthand testimony and these people testified under oath. It doesn't matter. And the whistleblower is protected. Their anonymity is tantamount to whistleblower protection so that people can come forward without worrying about retribution. So this is just an intimidation tactic and a boogeyman. Total red herring. Trump, during his insane call into Fox and Friends, which I talk about a little bit with Professor Goodman coming up, he actually tried to imply that Adam Schiff was the whistleblower. Like, insane. It's completely, like, off the rails. Adam Schiff is not the whistleblower, folks, okay? Yes, his staff met with the whistleblower, but they there are certain rules, and his staff is not allowed to disclose the identity. Not even to Adam Schiff. So... The whistleblower doesn't matter. It's a boogeyman. And by the way, the whistleblower's complaint has been largely corroborated. Almost all of it has been proven true. Contrary to what Trump and the Republicans are trying to tell you. All you have to do is read the complaint and look at the testimony. It turned out to be true. Ukraine, crowd strike, and the 2016 elections. Actually, I'm going to wait. I'm going to hold that to last. There was no pressure on the Ukrainians. So how could it possibly have been uh, extortion? The Ukrainians didn't complain. They didn't complain that there was pressure. They didn't even know. know There was no holdup. Bullshit. Okay. Multiple people during the impeachment inquiry, during the hearings, testified Ukrainians knew. Vinman, Laura Cooper, back to the Pentagon official, her staff said they got emails and had conversations with Ukrainian officials asking what the hell's going on with the security aid. They knew, and they knew before the phone call on the 25th. So that's not, that's bullshit. Like I said, the Ukrainians need desperately the security aid from the United States. They are fighting a hot war with Russia. As we speak right now, Ukrainian soldiers are dying on the eastern front of their country, fighting Russia. Russia has already invaded part of their country and taken land against international law. They violated their sovereignty and took Crimea. They know that Zelensky would do anything to get that aid because they knew that they needed it. So this whole thing about the Ukrainians weren't pressured, not true. Not true. 
And there were witnesses who testified to that. So next, what else have we got? Um, oh, Trump only cares about corruption and that it was legitimate for him to ask for this, the, the investigation into Biden. Bullshit. Okay. Trump doesn't care about corruption. And Sondland in his conversation with Trump out on that unsecure phone on the, on the, uh, patio of a restaurant in Kiev overheard by David Holmes, the, the ambassador, the, um, embassy staffer, career foreign service officer. He said, when he asked Sondland, does Trump, you know, what does Trump think about Ukraine? Sondland said he doesn't give a shit about Ukraine. All he cares is about the big stuff, like the investigation into the Bidens. Okay. He doesn't care. And this whole nonsense of the Republicans complaining that they did not get a chance to interview Hunter Biden. They want to bring him as a witness. And come on, this is just a dog and pony show. The Republicans controlled Congress for two years while Donald Trump was president. If they were so concerned about corruption and impropriety, they could have easily had these hearings and, and opened up an, a legitimate investigation through, through the Department of Justice then. Why now? Why all of a sudden, once, Don, uh, once Joe Biden announces he's running for president, then all of a sudden it's all about corruption and Burisma? Okay? Uh, bullshit. This was about damaging Joe Biden because Donald Trump was afraid of him as his political rival because he knows Joe Biden can beat him. Hands down. Hands down. Unfair process. Not true either. They, the, the Democrats are, engaged, are are operating under the exact same rules that Republicans put in place and the same rules Republicans used during the Clinton impeachment. So this whining about process, again, is just a distraction. And kudos to Adam Schiff for shutting down Republicans when they were acting like jackasses trying to disrupt the process. He handled this situation wonderfully, wonderfully. I, I, and that's exactly why Nancy Pelosi put this in the purview of the intelligence committee and let Adam Schiff do this as opposed to judiciary where what's his name? Jerry Nadler may was just terrible during the, during the Mueller testimony and others. He, he completely botched his, his role as chairman of judiciary and let the Republicans run roughshod over him. And apparently it's been being reported that Nancy Pelosi and Nadler are, at a little odds. She's not happy with him because of that. And the next step going in after now these hearings are over, it goes to judiciary because they're the ones that have to draw up the articles of impeachment and what happens next. People are a little bit unclear. Um, but yeah, Pelosi's not happy with Nadler. So she's not thrilled about his, his role coming up because of the way he mishandled it over the summer. So maybe he's got a second chance to, to handle it well when they drop the impeachment articles, but I thought that was an interesting tidbit. There's a little tension there, but I get it because he was terrible. And finally, the top 10 is CrowdStrike. Um, this whole thing, this whole notion about CrowdStrike, the DNC server and Ukraine being behind interference in the election is bullshit. It is Russian propaganda. If you listen to my podcast on a regular basis, I hope you listened to the episode a couple weeks ago with Molly McHugh, who is a disinformation expert, especially in that part of the world. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to that episode with Molly McHugh. It's called The Russian Disinformation. Welcome to the Russian Disinformation Jungle. Dr. Fiona Hill, 
who is one of the foremost experts in the country on Russia, testified and lectured beautifully during her testimony to please stop engaging in this fictional narrative that Ukraine had anything to do with election interference in 2016. She emphasized this is a Russian intelligence service propaganda narrative that the Republicans are engaging in. And so is the president of the United States. And so is Fox News. Rudy Giuliani with frickin' frack, Parnas and Fruman running around Ukraine for the last two years, feeding the president bullshit. That's what this is. But it's more than just a debunked conspiracy theory. Even Donald Trump's own Homeland Security advisor, Tom Bossert, who's no longer with the White House, said it was a debunked, no nonsense, not I mean complete nonsense, no facts whatsoever. Untrue. All of our intelligence services have determined the Mueller report, volume one, determined that it was Russia and Russia alone who has done this. CrowdStrike, by the way, is not even a Ukrainian company. The owner is American, Soviet, uh, Russian born, but he's American and he's from Russia, not Ukraine. And there is no physical server. That's not true. The FBI does not have, doesn't, doesn't need a physical server. These companies who do these hacking analysis, they do it remotely. They don't need the physical server. So it's all bullshit, folks. And this, these are important facts. I wish the Democrats would have, obviously, a little more succinctly than I am right now, only because I'm explaining each one. But they should have repeated at least... You know, depending on how the who was asking what on the Republican side, they could have come back and said, boom, 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 and completely debunked their nonsense. But now you have the 10 top 10 comebacks, the GOP bullshit, if you need to have this discussion during your Thanksgiving dinner. And on that note, I think it's a good segue into this week's guest, Professor, Law Professor Ryan Goodman. Well, after an unbelievable week of testimony and just pure political fatigue for most, um, I just thought it was important to bring a policy subject matter expert on to the podcast this week to kind of break it all down so people understand the significance of what's happened with these impeachment hearings and just the legal ramifications overall in, in what's happening with Donald Trump, his presidency, and why this impeachment matters. So... I'm really pleased to be able to bring on Professor Ryan Goodman, who is um, a current professor of law at NYU. He's a former special counsel to the general counsel of the Department of Defense. He's a a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he also is the co-editor in chief and founder of JustSecurity.org, which is one of my favorite websites. I refer to it often in my podcast. If you listen to me regularly, you know that. And um, I'm pleased to, to have him come and chat with me here on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Professor Goodman, thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I got to tell you, I, I think I am just, uh, and, and I do this, follow this closely, as do you, and I am exhausted. But we can't be weary in these times. We have to keep plugging along, and it takes people like you who analyze 
look at this and give a unbiased uh, um, analysis of what's happening. It's really important to have people highlight people like you and your website uh, for your expertise. So I wanted to um, start off and ask you before we get into impeachment and your takeaways there. The president of the United States went on his favorite morning program, Fox and Friends, and had a hell of a rant for an hour. Um, it, it just still boggles the mind for me that the president of the United States actually does this and says the things that he says. Mm. What stood out to you the most when you were listening to that, um, where you said, where you just thought to yourself, oh my God? Um, so I thought there were three oh my God moments that all, all occurred in like a, a span of like one minute. Um, so the, yeah, so the first one was um, the president of the United States mouthing a crazy um, conspiracy theory that um, uh, CrowdStrike, um, this company, um, was involved in the hack of the election, and there's a server that's been moved over to Ukraine. So the CrowdStrike server conspiracy theory that um, is so crazy, it's almost as if the president of the United States said, you know, there are um, aliens that are on the West Coast, and I just think that that's why we have to not do impeachment right now, you know, like aliens from outer space or something. So it's 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 that outlandish. It's so worrisome in a certain sense, even about his like mental state. Um, because it's um, a conspiracy theory that one has been completely debunked to the point that Tom Bossert, his former um, Homeland Security advisor, said on George Stephanopoulos this week that he had told Trump um, when he was in office that it had been completely debunked. It was had no validity, was his word for it. It comes within 24 hours of Fiona Hill, so um, one of the senior national security um, people in the White House for Donald Trump, who just said to the Congress that she had worked to debunk the theory so that the president wouldn't repeat it. And uh, even on, I always remember this, the show that Tom Bossert was on, the ABC This Week, he was immediately followed by Rudy Giuliani. And then George Stephanopoulos turns to Rudy Giuliani. First thing he says is, what did you think about what Tom Bossert said? Why are you peddling this conspiracy theory? And the thing that Rudy Giuliani did was run and hide under a rock. He said, I'm not peddling it. You've never heard me say CrowdStrike. I'm not peddling it. It's that crazy. And then here on the next day after Fiona Hill's testimony, the president is saying this. Um, and even to the point, like, it starts to make me think it's so crazy, maybe he actually thinks it, and that's worse. It's worse than yes. him trying to maliciously spread disinformation. So I that, for me, actually, was... Yeah, the, I actually yeah. think he thinks it. Um, yes. You know, for people who know Donald Trump over the years, they they know that he's paranoid and that once he gets something in his mind, it's very difficult to change it. And whether there's facts or not, you could, it doesn't matter. And he he may not he may start he may start off not believing it, but he bullshits himself into believing it and then spreads it. He just is incapable of ever ever admitting that he was wrong or right. you know that he may have been taken. Forget it because that's just part of his malignant narcissism. And um, you have a PhD in sociology from Yale in addition to your law degree, so I don't have to tell you about his his uh, behavior and how alarming it is in general, never mind for someone in the most powerful position in the world. Um, the, the Fiona Hill aspect of this 
is so important because he's, he's so defiant with pushing these conspiracy theories. She made it very clear and beautiful prose. I, I am the number one fan for, for Fiona Hill. I, I was joking that I want to be a part of the Fiona Hill, Marie Yovanovitch girl band. <laughs> like, can I join, yeah. please? Because they're awesome. But Fiona Hill, <laughs> Dr. Fiona Hill, made it very clear and lectured the members of the committee and mostly Republicans for pushing these narratives because they are straight out of the Russian propaganda playbook. I've said this many times on this show. I've had people on my program who are experts in this area and disinformation, and it doesn't seem to matter to this president or to Fox News. Shame on them for not pushing back and for allowing this kind of propaganda straight out of Russia to keep being pushed on their network, particularly in prime time. I think you tweeted out, you said, it's the hollowing out of American democracy. What did you mean by that? Um, in that it's not just the president, but what you just said in a sense of um, it's Fox News, it's Rupert Murdoch. It's the fact that he is providing a platform for this because it wasn't even that the, that's what the president said. Then the Fox News um, and Friends folks, they seem like they're maybe squirming um, and uncomfortable with this, but the words that come out of their mouth are – are you sure? Yeah. That's the question. From you know, are you sure? So th- that's no check on this kind of disinformation. That just amplifies it. So I think that's why it's like it's not just Donald Trump, but it's also all of these enabling platforms, including including like the GOP platform under uh, Mitch McConnell and the Rupert Murdoch platform uh, with Fox News. That, that so that actually was the second you know eye-popping moment for me in watching that exchange. And then the third one is simply that at the end of the exchange, what's also so crazy about it is that Donald Trump veers into this discussion of the statements about don't want to give our money over to a corrupt system. So he's actually like he's like repeating the entire criminal conspiracy that was at the focus of the impeachment inquiry. And 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 the crowd strike. The other thing that some listeners don't know this is that that's the those are the words that he just mouthed on Fox News and Friends that he mouthed on the phone call with President Zelensky. So President Zelensky is hearing the President of the United States mouth an insane conspiracy theory that and he wants President Zelensky to investigate it, which must mean must mean on President. Zelensky's mind, oh, I have to concoct something. It's not like I'm investigating something. Because right. surely the president knows that that's nuts. Um, right, because everybody so that, else yeah, knows yeah. that it's nuts. <laughs> right, so, right, right. But apparently right. this guy doesn't, so I guess right, we'll right. try to figure it out. I mean, <laughs> right, right. I'll cry strike investigation. Right. I mean, justsecurity.org, you guys have an, an amazing resource. You have a timeline, which is the most comprehensive timeline of Ukraine Gate, as we're calling it. That, I, that I've seen anywhere. Um, I encourage people, if they have the time, to pour themselves a half a bottle of wine and start <laughs> start reading it because it's, it really puts everything in, in context in the timeline. Um, but you guys have also done really excellent work de- debunking and, and breaking down the, the crowd strike the conspiracy theory, the nonsense about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. Um, all of these things are not true, they're falsehoods, and yet the Republicans, you know, Trump is going to be Trump. I'm not even as mad at him anymore because he is who he is. Mm. I'm upset with the enablers because these Republican congressmen, I I mean, I spent seven years as a a senior staffer on the Hill. Mm. Uh, I've been in Republican politics for over 20 years. These people are unrecognizable, and people like Mm. Will Hurd, who I, I, I thought had so much promise, 
even someone like him, a former Intel guy who's reasonable mm. most of the time, even he couldn't bring himself to fully condemn the, the absolute nonsense that this president is, is spewing from the bully pulpit and still made the excuse that, well, he did some things wrong, but it's not impeachable. In your professional right. opinion, um, you've been, you watch these impeachment hearings. This is a good segue into what we actually heard. What, what did America see and hear for themselves during these, these impeachment inqu- hearings? What were your biggest takeaways from the last week and a half? So, um, so there's a part of it that for folks like us that are like closely observing and have read the depositions, there's a part of it that's not as new or novel because these are people just then saying what was already in the depositions. But still, um, I think it was extraordinarily vivid um, to have them in person talk about it. And then just like a jury, uh, jury of the public in a certain sense, the public can see and test and evaluate their credibility. And they just, I thought most of these witnesses came across as extraordinarily credible public servants who are just speaking the truth. They're, they kind of broke through all of the disinformation in the Trump era in that they were saying what the facts are there. I'm here as a fact witness. I'm going to tell you as much as I can about the, and answer all your questions. Um, so what we, and I say some, just because I have to make exceptions for people like um, Gordon Sondland and uh, to a degree Ambassador Volker. Um, so I think what emerged is, and, to, and, and I thought the final thing is about like 10, 15 minute closing statement by Adam Schiff encapsulated it in an incredibly powerful statement. And I thought the work of his team and how he steered this for the last two weeks gave him the foundation on which to make that kind of a strong, uh, almost Shakespearean like monologue art, uh, um, speech at the end. So that I think that encapsulated and what I saw in that is this is about not a phone call, a months long scheme working at the highest level of government, implicating the ch- acting chief of staff of the president, implicating the secretary of state, um, implicating others who all knew, as Sondland said, everybody was in the loop. Everyone was in the loop. Um, Would it be then fair to call it a conspiracy? Oh, I think it's just a conspiracy. I I would say it's actually it even meets the meets meets the highest mark that Will Hurd is trying to artificially set, which is a criminal conspiracy. I think there are crimes that are being committed. I I think in an ordinary period of time, Mick Mulvaney would have to be very seriously worried about his criminal exposure. Just just to name one, uh, under the Hatch Act, he engaged in uh, using his office to help um, a co- political campaign. Um, mm-hmm. Just just Does a, just one. The chief of staff acting, isn't he still over OMB? Absolutely. Or how about like it's just so mind-boggling to think that a current U.S. ambassador, Gordon Sondland, confessed essentially on national TV to engaging in what I would say is a criminal conspiracy, but you could even just say a gross abuse of power. He confessed to it. He flipped and actually 180 degree turn on what he had formerly said. So he's also, in a sense, confessing to committing perjury before Congress. And he's still the U.S. ambassador to EU. It's just amazing. He got on a plane to go back to Brussels to go back to work. Very pleased with himself, it seemed. 
Yes. Like, do people have no shame? On what planet do we live that he didn't hand in? That he didn't have to resign? Right. How can he possibly? How can that, we live in that world? And that's our world. Um, it's just unbelievable. So, so, so I think what we saw is this months-long conspiracy involving the highest levels of government. They a lot of people knew, and they were in the loop. And then Fiona Hill, I thought, had the most important moment of the last two weeks, which is in answer to the Republican counsel's question, where she says essentially that there were these two channels. It's somewhat what Ambassador um, Taylor had also testified to, the regular channel of U.S. diplomats and officials trying to work U.S. national policy, security policy, anti-corruption, and the like vis-a-vis Ukraine and Russia, and then this irregular channel. And it's in the irregular channel that, quote-unquote, everyone was in the loop, and that's Gordon Sondland and Volcker and Giuliani and Pompeo and Mulvaney. Um, and Rick Perry. Yeah, and Perry, and Perry, right, as the three amigos. Um, yeah, which, which Gordon Sondland gleefully, with a glow in his face, said, yes, I, you know, we are the de facto three amigos, so proud of it. Um, so that's, also, that's, that's also where Fiona Hill made the, the comment that the phrase domestic policy errand, which I think is something that we're going to hear a lot more of. You know, he, I totally, right? totally Sondland, agree. he was engaged in what I determined to be a domestic policy errand, and we were engaged in national, you know, uh, national security, foreign policy. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and, yeah. And the two diverged. That's right. And that's also why Sondland was very forthcoming on some of these issues, but he tried to draw the line. Um, I've had I've had people ask me this question, like, why did it? Why why is he trying to avoid saying that he obviously knew that Burisma equaled Biden, that when they were trying to pressure the Ukrainians to investigate Burisma, yeah. he claims ignorance. I didn't put that together as Biden. Um, and the, I think the answer is because he knows. If he, if he connected to, then he knows that he's basically then fully admitted to a crime of federal campaign finance law violations, which is that he knowingly tried to get a thing of value from a foreign government slash national to help a campaign. And he, and he can't say that. His lawyers must be saying to him, you can't say it. You don't want to say that. I'm glad that you um, brought that up. I just want to pause for a second on that point, because a lot of people have, have said that it just strains credulity that Volcker or Sondland both tried to play coy about the Burisma-Biden connection, and no one believes that. There's no way. Um, On your timeline, which I dutifully read, you guys um, were able to add in how there was a meeting between Parnas, Lev Parnas, Giuliani, and Volcker in July where it was a breakfast where they talked about what was going on. You're telling me that Parnas and Giuliani never brought up Biden and Burisma to Volcker? I mean, it just doesn't, there's no way. They absolutely had to know, but they were playing coy with that language because you believe that it would have, it would expose them criminally if they, if they had admitted it openly. That's right. Um, I totally, everything you just said, I totally agree with. Um, it, it is, and and it's after there were like two blockbuster headlines in the New York Times in early May. One of them, I forget the exact two days, but one of them is May 9th, That Giuliani is going to Ukraine to push them on the bite on, right. to investigate Biden Burisma. And the yeah, and so told that, them stay out. We don't want anything to do with this. Exactly. Right. And it's even, exactly. So it's even like it, it's not just like yeah, it's a very good point. I haven't even thought about it. It's not just like the New York Times. It's also and then the Ukrainians officially say don't come to to uh, Giuliani. That creates this skerfuffle. It's inconceivable that Gordon Sondland, who supposedly has as of June, um, 
authority, the lead authority for Ukraine policy and Volker, who's the special envoy on Ukraine, do not know that. <laughs> it's just, it's, exactly. that's, and, and, and Fiona Hill said, she said, it is not credible to me that he didn't know it. Um, it's uh, and and when um, uh, Gordon Sondland on July 10th says in the White House meeting in the wardroom investigations of Burisma in, and he's talking about it in aid of Giuliani's efforts. So it's all connected. It's so that's uh, and I do think, though, another way of uh, going at this question or um, an implication of it, I suppose, is I don't think it's going to hamper um, Adam Schiff in a certain sense of like when he writes up his report. Both Sondland and Volker do still say, because they're trying to save their own asses, and then they say, Mm -hmm. but in hindsight, looking back, I now totally realize that's what it was about. So in terms of the facts that they presented, we have the facts. They now acknowledge that it was always about Biden, even though they quote unquote, yeah. Right, and it was at the president's direction, which was at the headline in a lot of papers across the country after yes. Sondland testified. That was the bombshell. It was everyone was in the loop. It was at the I was acting at the president's direction. Yes. Um, and it was a quid pro quo. <laughs> I mean, yes, you know, yes. But yet the the irony of that is that Trump and his acolytes actually had the audacity to say that it's over now and that Sondland exonerated the president because he said he didn't hear him say it to him directly. As a lawyer and a very smart one with a Ivy League law degree, which you probably don't need to come to this conclusion, um, you don't explain to people that you don't necessarily need to hear the principal say, this is a quid pro quo and I'm going to bribe you now in order for you to be a <laughs> Right, 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 right. Um, you don't need that. Um, and in fact, you know, I do think that there's an element to which the phone call in which the president, uh, where Gordon Sondland asked the president open-ended question, what do you want from Ukraine? And the president's answer is, no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. That's actually, like, that's kind of incriminating. Like, why did you think I was asking you that? Um, The same day that the whistleblower complaint was made known. So he knew that this was, that this had been alleged by this point. The president knew that. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. So, um, and, you know, I think what we have from Gordon Sondland is he has said uh, two things that get put together. The president directed us, gave an order to work with Giuliani. The I understood that Giuliani was communicating the concerns of the president and the conditions that Giuliani placed on like the White House meeting were at the direction of the president. So it's over. That's like game over. And then as Adam Schiff walked him through, he said, so Mr. Sondland, you're saying that the official act of a White House visit was withheld for a personal benefit. And that's it. Those are the elements. And and, um, Adam Schiff is a former federal prosecutor, so he knows exactly what he was doing there. Um, And then there's this other... So it's fair to say that at this point, to use the terminology bribery and extortion and shakedown, are those appropriate terms to apply to what the President of the United States has done here? Uh, 100%. All three. Uh, like, no no qualification. Okay. Yes. Yes. I, I and, think that's, yes. you know, the average yes. American who doesn't follow this the way we all do, those yeah. are terms that they understand. You know, the whole quid pro quo thing drove me nuts because most people yeah. don't know what the hell that is. And um, it, it, it's important if we, if we want to move public opinion to explain these things in ways that the average folks can understand. Like, well, what happened? No, the president of the United States tried to bribe, extort and shake down a foreign government to get political dirt on his political rival. 
Yes, I would say that that's right. Okay. Technically accurate. Uh, all the support is there for it. Yeah. Um, yep. Who, if you actually, let's talk about Giuliani. So he was the star of the show, or the co-star, depending on how you look at it. It was him and Trump mm. in this whole conspiracy. How much legal exposure does Giuliani have at this point? Are are we looking at a Giuliani? Like Michael Cohen's situation, you know, is, is we know that Giuliani's under some kind of investigation. But in your opinion, how how much trouble, or as my grandma used to say, how much big shit trouble is Rudy Giuliani in? <laughs> um, I think he is in significant trouble. Um, that so there's a bunch of reporting from multiple news outlets that he's currently under criminal investigation. Um, and there's some ways you can actually read the tea leaves of what the Justice Department has said to indicate that indeed um, he's under criminal investigation, almost a subtle implicit messages that they've sent in their answers to certain questions. So he's under criminal investigation. I can just stipulate it. And then second, the indictment of uh, Parnas and Furman, his two associates. So he's, uh, I mean, he's caught up in the fact pattern. It's not, uh, he's deeply connected to their fact pattern. So I think that at a minimum, he is uh, in serious trouble, it looks like, for engaging with what they engage in, which is acting as foreign agents of. a uh, foreign power, and, uh, and the foreign power in this instance is, for example, uh, Mr. Lushenko, the um, corrupt Ukrainian general prosecutor who wanted to oust the U.S. ambassador, uh, Ms. Yovanovitch. And they that's part of the fact pattern. Um, now, they were operating on that in two, starting in 2018 and therefore operating on behalf of the corrupt uh, – general prosecutor to try to orchestrate that, lobbying members of Congress, things like that. What did Giuliani do? He lobbied the State Department and the President of the United States to oust the ambassador working with Parnas and Fruman. It's like there is a like two plus two equals, isn't it going to land on him? Um, So I think he's in deep trouble. And the bizarre part of it is that his best argument might be, no, I was doing it for the president, not for this general prosecutor, which then puts him in the other trouble, uh, which is federal campaign violations. So, uh, yeah. And that's just a question about where he was getting his money from. uh, And the the Russian oligarch, Dmitry Furtish, who is currently uh, in trouble in the U.S., they're trying to get him extradited from Vienna, which is where frickin' frack were trying to fly to when they got arrested (laughs) at Dulles. They they had a one-way ticket to Vienna, coincidentally. um, and I think that – and also the, the campaign violation that they were under investigation for was for money that they think came from foreign sources that went into Donald Trump's America First PAC uh, and, and, and also to other Republicans. So yeah. this is really – I mean there is Russian money, mob money, oligarch money all over this between Frumis, uh, uh, Fruman, Parnas, Giuliani, and a whole host of other people that I think is all going to come out. If Giuliani's under criminal investigation, that's all going to come out, and none of it's good for Trump. That's right. And I, and I think that, you know, there's this, uh, in the last 24 hours, there's been a bit of an upsurge of people who want to have Lev Parnas testify before Congress. Yeah. And um, I don't know, you know, how reliable of a witness he'll be, but I do think, on the other hand, I bet you there's a lot of documentation. Let's see his phone records yeah. um, and the like. And if he wants to cooperate, then he would turn those over. And it doesn't seem like Giuliani is very smart about what he puts down in text messages. So, um, <laughs> either what he's texting, who he's butt dialing. I mean, 
mean, Giuliani is, uh, I can't wait for the Saturday Night Live uh, skit depicting next Giuliani uh, caper. My God, this guy. It's, it's hard to imagine he was such a, such a successful mayor of New York. I don't know what happened to him. A lot of people you know, speculate over what happened to him over the years, but hard to believe that's the same guy. Um, I yeah. have a couple minutes left because I know you're, you're super busy, and I just wanted to get a couple more things in while I had you. Um, the president is uh, also pushing this whole IG report, this John Durham report that's uh, going to come out, which is the origins of the Russia investigation. Um, do you foresee this being uh, the, as much of a bombshell indictment of the FBI that's going to exonerate the president and show that the origins of the Mueller report and the origins of that investigation are all bogus? Or do you think that, you know, do you think this is in a, in a compromised investigation? Because I have concerns about it since Bill Barr is in it. What are some of your thoughts about this uh, upcoming report from the IG and from John Durham? So I have more faith in the IG report coming out um, with whatever is the truth is the truth That's kind the of thing. Um, report, right? That's the Horowitz report. So he's very, very well respected across the aisle. Um, and I think it will generally shoot straight. One can have certain concerns about how he has written some of the other reports um, on Comey and other things like that, um, that he could have been stronger. But um, but it sounds like from the reporting that was, um, I think, not coincidentally leaked uh, last night, so on the eve of the final impeachment hearing with the dramatic Fiona Hill testimony and Adam Schiff's speech. Then within a couple hours, uh, CNN and uh, the Washington Post had the story of the IG report is going to find that an FBI official engaged in a potentially criminal act of um, manipulating one of the documents. And so that has to have been time to try to steal the thunder from yeah, and and in the end, and they correct their stories within a few hours, and the correction is, um, oh, it's just a low-level official. Right. <laughs> he's like one, he's like an agent doesn't work with the uh, with the FBI anymore. And uh, this was in the original reporting, but it was like the eighth paragraph down that Horowitz seems to have found that the. FISA warrant against Carter Page was legally predicated, despite that this one document had this concern with it. So, so like, again, so if, the underlying yes. the underlying facts uh, are in favor of these were proper investigations. It was a proper yeah. FISA warrant. There may have been mistakes made, but they did not impact the investigation or the result in any way which is all that should matter at this point. But, of course, they're going to grab onto anything they can to distract, which is what they've done. It's the only thing they have. There's no defense for the actual actions because they, they just can't. Um, all right, one last, one last question. Um, since you were a Department of Defense uh, lawyer at one point, how do you feel about the president's decision to pardon the uh, military convicted servicemen recently? Sure. Um, can I just jump back one thing and just yeah. say on the other? I also do think that I'm very worried about the separate report by Durham and Bill Barr, and oh, I have yes. zero trust in Bill Barr, and I think he's going to use it. Just he's going to use it as best as he can to protect the president of the United States, and that is just deeply worrisome. That'll be a new disinformation campaign. But thankfully, to people like people like you and others who have exposed the um, him for who he is and what's going on, we'll understand uh, when he does release that report who he is. Um, so I think that that will be 
a very serious threat to democracy by what he does. Who knows? But I'm very worried about that. So, yeah, to the pardons, I, it, to me, it's uh, just uh, it's it's very depressing and devastating for what it means in terms of our military forces who pride themselves on trying to live up to standards of uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, uh, the Geneva Conventions, the laws of war. It's, it's embedded into their training. And in fact, when they do find wrongdoing, the idea is that we want to prosecute people and hold them accountable. It is not as though the President of the United States looked out across all cases and thought of like sympathetic individuals with extraordinary circumstances that might uh, create some reason to pardon them. He pardoned three individuals accused of war crimes. Like that's what he was looking for. So that to me, that is such a scary situation. I know people in the military. I know former colleagues who are very um, disconcerted by that because it actually is not about him trying to create this optic of favorable to the military. It actually goes against the military ethos. Um, and that's it's an important point because a lot of people yeah. think that, oh, this is pro-military. You're against the military if you aren't supportive of his decision. These guys were wrongfully convicted and there are cases like that. I mean, I personally worked on a, a, a pardon and commutation, commutation case mm. when I was in Congress as a staffer, and there are legitimate people who deserve pardons and, and commutations, and my guys were, were one example of that. This is not that case, is the point you're trying to make. And not only is it not being supportive of the military, it's harmful to the military's ethos, chain of command, and rule of law. Fair? Totally fair. Exactly. I agree with everything you just said. One minute left. Um, as we move forward and as the American people are trying to figure out what the hell is true, what's not, um, this has been such a difficult time for people to know what's true and what isn't. What should people pay attention to as we move forward and they try to digest everything that's been going on with this president and impeachment and why they should care? What do, What is your message to the average person trying to digest all of this, what should they pay the most attention to? Um, I think what I would pay the most attention to is something that should concern every American of any um, ideological, political leaning, whatever, whoever you are, is public corruption. I think it unites us all and it, and it uh, repulses us all. And what the Ukraine investigation shows is that the president of the United States is highly transactional. And in those transactions, he does not distinguish between his own personal benefit and the interests of the country. And that's why he's willing to trade off U.S. military assistance to help an ally with his own political campaign. I think that's, to me, the take-home point in a large respect for what we've discovered here. And um, the facts were, as CNN's banner said, undisputed because two of the witnesses who are supposed to be the, st the, the star witnesses for the defense of Trump flipped um, Sondland and Volcker. It was undisputed. And I think what it shows there is unfortunately emblematic of this president. And it's what Adam Schiff spoke about in his last 15 minutes. It's exactly what the framers were most concerned about, somebody who does who lacks the ethical grounding such that they will actually serve the country, but instead try to serve themselves. We, we just cannot tolerate that regardless of our political um, uh, membership in either party or neither party, I think it should cut across for all Americans, and it's right there in our faces. That's right. As my colleague at CNN would say, Don Lemon, do not fall for the okie doke.
Professor <laughs> Goodman, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate your, your expertise and your time on this. Uh, again, I encourage folks to check out your website, your organization's website, justsecurity.org. It is really a wealth of information and a great resource. Keep up the great work, uh, Professor, and I will be looking for you on TV and for more of your writings. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for a great you conversation. On too, right? Yeah, our good law. <laughs> our good law, that's right. Thank you so much, Professor. Okay, thank you. Again, another big thank you to Professor Ryan Goodman for that conversation. So much to pay attention to. I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot, folks. But the future of our republic is at stake, honestly. We have to decide, is this the kind of leadership we want in our country? And I would say no. And it shouldn't matter. Like Professor Goodman said, it shouldn't matter what party. Corruption is corrosive and it doesn't matter. We can't allow it. Our founding fathers gave us the mechanism to remove a corrupt president and we need to use it. So feel good story of the week uh, as we go into the holidays. Um, I love this time of year. Thanksgiving is coming up. There will be an episode in two weeks. Um, so uh, I wanted to I wanted to put my feel good story of the week in, and I'm gonna actually it's from the Today Show, and I'm just going to play their segment on it. I, I thought it was so great, and it's more powerful if you hear the interview itself. So hat tip to the Today Show. It's about a a pub in Portland where you can go in and get some drinks but you can also adopt shelter pets. What a great idea. So take a listen. At this bar in Portland, Oregon, there's more on tap than just great beer. Welcome to the world's first dog tap house, a bar that doubles as a foster home for rescue dogs. Patrons can come in here and have a great time enjoying some beer and food like they would at any tap room. But then beyond that, they can spend some time in our room with these rescue dogs. And if they want to, they can actually adopt them and take them home as well. Scott Porter opened Fido's in 2018 after being inspired by a cat cafe. Come on, let's get some snuggle time. Come on. I wanted something different. And it was like... Boom, a tap house with adoptable rescue dogs. I was like, if I could make that happen, it would be special. So he partnered with a charity that picks up the dogs from kill shelters in California and brings them to Fido's for a second chance. So how long have these pups been here? Troy and Buttons have both been here about three to four weeks and Priscilla has been here for about 10 days now. The bar typically fosters three or four dogs at a time, but can accommodate up to eight. Helping people connect with dogs is meaningful to Scott, who says his pets saved his life. My own dogs helped me through some pretty severe depression those years ago, and they were extremely loving and attentive to me and if I did not have those dogs the love and companionship that they provided through some really dark times I probably would not be here. Since it opened in 2018 Fido's has helped 70 dogs find permanent homes. 
Hi, buddies. We are all about giving animals a second chance or a third chance even at, at a stable home and a loving home. So Buttons will have all of that with us. Been hanging out for a while. Can I have a new home, buddy? Aww. When a dog gets adopted, how does it make you feel? It's like the ultimate joy and personal reward for me because of what my dogs have meant to me. Thank you for adopting him. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. When you go, we'll carry you through the parking lot. There, football dog. People oftentimes will step into the room, they'll get dogs in the arm, and they just break down sobbing because that connection, that companionship is so strong between people and dogs, and it's wonderful. What a great story. Shout out to Fido's in Portland, Oregon. What a great idea. And again, hat tip to the Today Show on doing that story. Um, So that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. I wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving as it comes up. Uh, over the holidays, try not to fight with your relatives over Trump <laughs> and what's going on. But if the conversation comes up, you're armed with plenty of facts. So I'll see you guys in two weeks. Again, follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer on Twitter, at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram, and have a happy Thanksgiving.